and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your co-host, Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. I'm filling in for Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests today are Professor Renee Nicole Allen, an Assistant Professor of Legal Writing at St. John's University School of Law, where she teaches legal writing. Prior to St. John's, she held law school faculty and administrator positions in academic support and bar preparation. Also, we have Professor Alicia Jackson, the Associate Dean for Student Learning and Assessment and faculty member at Florida A&M University College of Law. She is responsible for spearheading the design and implementation of assessment initiatives focused on enhancing student learning and teaching, in addition to teaching upper-level courses. And Professor Deshaun Harris, who joined the law faculty at the University of Memphis Cecil C. Humphrey School of Law in 2018, as Assistant Clinical Professor of Law and Director of Bar Preparation. She's been teaching academic support and bar support since 2011, and is President-elect of the Association of Academic Support Educators. We will be discussing their paper, The Pink Ghetto Pipeline, Challenges and Opportunities for Women in Legal Education, published in the summer 2019, University of Detroit Mercy Law Review. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Thank you for having us. All right. So the Pink Ghetto is the label for work that we historically think of as women's work, teaching, becoming a librarian, nursing, things like that. And we know it took a long time for the legal profession to truly open its doors to women becoming lawyers and law professors. So this paper asserts that though women have come a long way in entering the legal profession, even now being the majority of students in some law school seats, um, that's not the way it's reflected in the faculty roles at law schools. You mentioned the 2018 ABA Standard 509 disclosures, which state that 61.22% of law faculty members are male, while 38.7% are female. So what made you three decide to collaborate and write on this topic now in 2019? Um, Well, we have um, informally talked about um, our pink ghetto experiences um, as um, members of the academic support and bar prep community for years. And when the Detroit Mercy Law Review um, decided to host the Women in Law Symposium to celebrate International Women's Day, we thought it would be the perfect opportunity to write about our experiences and also to synthesize the experiences of women in all of the pink ghettos that are present um, in law schools and legal education. Great. And so were you able to present at the symposium as well or or attend it? We did um, present at the the symposium was held in March. And so we did um, present um, our paper at the symposium there. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, um, will probably come up in this podcast is how surprised um, particularly female law students, but all law students were to learn of the pink ghetto experiences of female faculty members at at law schools across the country. Sure. And I I love the term that you use in this paper. You talk about um, all sorts of things that we're going to get into in terms of teaching from the podium, doctrinal teaching versus skills teaching, but you use a term in this paper called office housework. And, and this term describes how women in academia, not just law schools, but um, uh, undergraduate programs as well, graduate programs, um, how they are often 
expected or asked to do office housework, which is uh, planning office parties or covering for coworkers. Why is this um, term dangerous or, or why is it an important term for women in academia to be aware of? And what kind of response should they be giving uh, when asked to do things like this that their male colleagues are not? Um, so the, the office housework is dangerous because, you know, things like planning a party or covering for a coworker um, or other service-related activities are non-promotable tasks. Um, and there's a Harvard Business Review 2018 study um, that showed that women were more likely to engage in these non-promotable tasks while men were engaging in promotable tasks like scholarship um, and research. And so because teaching, um, like librarianship, is deemed, um, is gendered feminine, um, women are overly burdened by these gendered expectations to plan parties, to fill in, um, to also to listen to students and comfort and shepherd them um, through the academic process. And um, collectively, these the physical and emotional rela labor related to those non-promotable non-promotable tasks is first uncompensated, um, but it also serves to stifle product productivity for women. And over time, it can really derail um, a woman's career um, in academia. And so, you know, one of the things that um, we see a lot, at least in social media and our paper didn't directly address, but I think it's important that there's balance, right? That these these tasks are not seen as just tasks for women um, in academia, but that um, there are roles that are shared amongst women and men so that women are not um, suffering really from career derailment by participating in tasks that ultimately are not going to help them be promoted and successful um, in their careers as academics. Yeah, because... It there's only so many hours in a day, right? And so if you are asked to do those types of things that really don't go towards your um, promotion, then it's it's just not going to be useful, right? Right. Okay. So you, um, you use a quote in the paper that I really, um, that I starred a lot, <laughs> um, talking about this importance of um, really representation and gender equality in law school academia, specifically with what law students see um, before them with the law faculty. And the quote is, perceptive law students learn both the explicit and the implicit lessons about women's value and roles by observing how law schools treat their women faculty. Can you explain this a little bit? And then what type of lessons uh, law students may be learning today? So that quote came from Joanne Doroko um, in her article, Second Class Citizens. And okay. so it stems from sort of this idea that um, when students see um, professors, uh, particularly women, um, in some ways, they get lessons depending on sort of how those women are presented to them. So some examples may include titles. So in some law school buildings, there are titles distributed throughout. And so they may note this professor um, or mostly men professors have um, titles that are associate uh, professor or, or professor, whereas some women that are teaching certain aspects in legal 
uh, education like legal writing or a clinic have clinical titles. And so they may start to see these distinctions um, that they may also think that, well, maybe that means that women teach these sorts of courses versus men who are teaching these other courses and have these types of titles. Um, the other message that students may be getting are leadership roles. So if um, we have um, leaders that are mostly men, then the women who are law students may start to think, well, maybe only men are able to get to these higher leadership positions and women simply serve um, as the instructors or faculty or other non-leadership positions. And so maybe I can't go into legal education because my opportunities to go up higher are not realistic. And so those are sort of the implicit messages that may, may be given. Um, and then explicitly, um, some of those messages may come out of classes when professors might inadvertently um, make distinctions between what's happening in doctrinal classes versus sort of these skills classes and may make it seem as though doctrinal classes are more important or that those um, experiential classes are taking away from their experiences. And so these messages collectively um, can reestablish sort of this idea that women sort of do certain work where men do others. And so, again, further establishing these gender norms. Yeah, so Professor Harris, that, let's let's talk a little bit about that. Then this this um, I guess gap between doctrinal education and skills or clinical education, and um, it seems that there are more women that are relegated to those skills or clinical positions than in the doctrinal roles. So, um, can you talk a little bit about? why there is this gap, I guess, in terms of importance um, in teaching doctrinal classes and those uh, may be seen as, as less important um, by, are they seen that way by administration? Um, who, who is really making these differentiations between doctrinal versus skills-based education? Actually, the answer is quite comprehensive in that- okay. <laughs> And this is, this is Professor Saxton, right? Yes, it is. It's okay. actually a comprehensive uh, response because it, depending on the institution, um, it can be seen that way by students, faculty, staff, and the administration. One good example of this occurs with location, actual physical location of skills professors in the, in the law school. Um, look at the legal clinic, for example. Clinicians are in a separate section of the law school where the legal writing faculty is segregated away. Or same holds true for academic support professionals. This level of physical separation can lead to professional segregation of women in the law school. It also stifles faculty exchange, which is extremely critical in legal ed education by being physically separated, creating an additional barrier. Um, this can also be seen as creating um, barriers and separation when it comes to tenure and promotion the doctrinal faculty don't know as well as their, uh, don't know the clinical faculty as well, or the legal writing faculty, or the faculty or teachers, depending on how they're classified at their institutions. And one of the things that it leads to is kind of this separate but unequal experience um, for the skills professionals, which primarily happens to be women currently in legal education. Um, as Professor Harris mentioned, which is extremely important, um, looking at titles, titles further this point, at some institutions, the clinicians are referred to as cl clinicians versus professors, 
right? Um, the skills professors, if they're not a part of the technical faculty, are often referred to by students as Mr. or Mrs. Although, so this is just an example of how the segregation of the different skills positions negatively or could negatively impact women in legal education as a whole, whether they're clinical, librarian, um, legal writing, or academic support professionals. Sure, and I can imagine that that um, is not a great thing for uh, faculty morale as well when you're setting up these kind of second tier um, positions that maybe are not tenure track or are not um, uh, seen, like you said, maybe they're not even known as professors. Um, I can't imagine that that is good for um, faculty building and faculty morale. Absolutely. And it leads to micro messaging. When students walk along the halls of their law school, they only see the black and white pictures. They only see men um, doing certain things, and that leads that could lead them to believe that certain roles are reserved for men versus women. While some of this may be unintentional, we have to look at how the messaging comes across to students um, and whether or not this creates the same dynamic in the legal profession where women are also often uh, seen as being in the pink ghetto once they graduate from law school and actually begin practicing law. So let's go back a little bit to um, to visit history a little bit, because you all mentioned in your paper um, Derek Bell. And Derek Bell was the first Black professor at Harvard Law. Um, and you, you mentioned how he requested a leave of absence until the law school appointed a tenured Black woman to the faculty. He himself was hired in 1969 after students expressed um, discontent with Harvard not employing a person of color on the faculty. Um, what happened with Derek Bell? And can you talk about the importance of having a faculty member like him who's really an advocate for, um, for change in law school faculty roles across the country? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, and I think it's a great question. Um, and about or answering the question, I think it's first important to share some brief background about Professor Bell, um, who's a true trailblazer in his own right. Um, Professor Bell, most people don't know after learning, earning his law degree, he actually served in the Air Force. Um, and with Veterans Day recently passing, we certainly want to thank all of our service members and their families um, for their service. But after leaving the military, Professor Bell was also tapped to work for the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division. Interestingly enough, he resigned his post in 1959 when the Department of Justice asked him to withdraw his membership from the NAACP. So, oh wow, to standing up, right? Um, after yeah, that, he became an assistant counsel for the NAACP Defense Fund and notably supervisor of 300 desegregation cases in Mississippi. After that, he joined the faculty at. Uh, he actually joined the faculty um, in California. He eventually came in 1969 to Harvard. I also think it's important to mention that he was hired based on the fact that students protested that there were no faculty members of color at, Har at Harvard at the time. So he was actually hired based on an outcry from the students on that there were no faculty members of color. So, uh, you know, it's no surprise that he gave up his professorship in 1992 um, because Harvard had not at that point hired anyone of color. 
after leaving Howe, um, Harvard, he actually went on to work at NYU for over 20 years. Um, he died on October 5th, um, 2011 at the age of 80. Also interesting fact, he actually taught his last class at 80 years old, one week before he died at NYU. Wow. What a life. What a life. I mean, certainly a notable life um, and something that we all as lawyers or in the, in, in the legal academy, I mean, we certainly owe a debt of gratitude um, because he created so much interesting information as it relates to critical race theory and really led the way because not only was he advocating for Black women, he was advocating for Harvard to hire a woman of color. That includes right. women of Hispanic descent, right? Women of Asian descent, but certainly a woman of color. Um, one to, to further answer your question, one of the things that we decided to do in mentioning him, we wanted to look at not just Derek Bale, but in our paper, we talk about the challenges, but also the opportunity. So to answer your question, somebody like Derek Bale was extremely important. And there are many Derek Bales currently in American law schools. Um, and we want to have the conversation about how they can help to move this agenda forward. Specifically, we talk about uh, applying the feminist pedagogy strategies, um, which include um, communities of practice, allyship and mentoring, and the role that men play in moving this agenda forward. So there are many Derek Bell, both men and women, and we certainly pay homage um, to them and want to encourage more people like uh, Derek Bell to step up, right, and to support these ideas. Sure. Sure, right. And that um, that idea of allyship is so important. And I And I always say as well, that students, I think, sometimes don't realize how much power they really have. And so this is an excellent example of, you know, students serving in that ally role um, to really make change. So let's go back to um, this idea of the doctrinal skills uh, uh, debate, uh, doctrine versus skills and clinician type education, what ways can law schools um, or what efforts can law schools make to try to overcome that gap between the two and make them uh, more of uh, on the same playing field? So there are a couple of different ways to do that. Um, some of it is geared towards sort of what we know about motivation. Um, one of those motivational strategies is money. When you start to assign money to things that you perceive to be important, then all of a sudden people start to um, initiate changes. So, for example, if we're talking about bridging the gap between skills and doctrinal, one of the things that can be asked is that for those doctrinal teachers to start incorporating skills into their courses, that can look different depending on where you are. So for example, um, bringing skills into your course might mean bringing in more assessments. Uh, for example, academic support programs do a lot of assessments with students in terms of having them walk through um, their um, analysis. Other ways that you can bring skills in is that if we're talking about classes like evidence or civil procedure, is bringing in a skills component in the sense of maybe you have students go to courtrooms and explore those things and then have an actual conversation about what the lawyer did in regards to those particular concepts. So those are things that we can do to sort of integrate skills um, sort of from the financial aspect um, is to encourage these things and say, hey, if you redesign your classes with these skills in mind, then maybe we pay your stipend. Other things that can be done is to make the work more widespread. 
Um, so when everyone is doing the work, then it becomes valuable because it's not just the women that are in skills positions that are that are doing this type of work, but it's everyone so that it becomes normalized. So that's another mechanism. So for example, what these can do is that they can incorporate in their evaluation of faculty um, something in there that says, have you incorporated a skills component into your doctrinal class or into your class? And so in that way, there's a clear signal that these things are important and it's just not certain people or certain courses that we're going to run through our classes. And then it goes towards the school's objectives oftentimes to create practice-ready lawyers. Uh, what better way to make practice-ready lawyers by incorporating actual skills as opposed to just simply the theory? Um, so those are some ways that we can sort of bridge that gap and also sort of move the conversation away from these things sit in these classes. Skills should be part of sort of the broader curriculum, so writing across the curriculum, academic support across the curriculum, um, so that these things are not just coming from certain places, but they are part of a collective um, curriculum. Yeah, so I'm from the, you know, I work at an undergraduate institution, and we're always um, getting professional development on things like high impact practices, you know, uh, uh, peer evaluations of teaching. How can we cultivate innovative teaching methodology in our courses? How can we provide more formative assessments? And so there's a real push for that. I know at, at least the undergraduate level um, for a whole ho host of reasons. Um, but I wonder if law faculty are a little bit more resistant to this type of change in um, their classroom management. Do you see that in, in law faculty not really wanting to adopt, especially doctrinal, not really wanting to adopt kind of skills-based education? Or are they, um, are they open to that idea? So I think now that we have the some new ABA standards that are requiring more assessments, requiring that we provide academic support for students, requiring that we advise students. I think the conversation has sort of shifted from sort of this um, stance of maybe resistance. And we've moved somewhat into a transition of, okay, this is important to keeping our accreditation. Um, and not only, yeah. And not only that, I think it also signals that this is important to the ABA. And so it should also be important to our institution. Okay, great. So um, you all talk a little bit about racial equality and gender equality and this idea about intersectionality and how critical that is when trying to create a diverse faculty body. Are you all going to write another paper exploring the unique experiences of Black female women and the law faculty role? You kind of tease that in this paper a little bit. Have you, have you talked about trying to um, get together and collaborate once again? Um, so I'm glad that you recognize that it was a tease. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is definitely a forthcoming paper. Um, and I think, you know, our, we are three Black women. We collectively have 30 years of experience in legal education. Um, and so I think our positionality then dictates that we write about um, our experiences. And so um, women, especially Black women, consistently receive messages that they do not belong in the profession and in legal education. And so I, I often tell um, my students and colleagues the story of um, being singled out in the attorney line and, and the, the um, courtroom staff asking for my badge and not asking anyone else for their badge and me being the only Black woman in the line and all of the questions that I had around why I was having that experience. Um, similarly, as Alicia mentioned, you know, before, what we see in law schools are 
you know, photographs, halls, hallways lined with pictures and photographs of white men. Um, right. And so these are um, messages that women receive about um, not belonging in, in legal education and in the profession as a whole. Um, and so, you know, we talk in our paper about um, Kimberly Crenshaw, who is credited with um, formally developing the concept of interse- intersectionality um, and addressing the experiences that occur when race and gender intersect. Um, one of the things, one of the works that has really inspired me this year is um, Mira Deo's Unequal Profession, um, Race and Gender in the Legal Academia. Um, but, you know, what I'm noticing when I read um, many of these works is that it's focused on, um, you know, tenure earning um, female positions. And so um, our next paper really will look at um, use intersectionality as a framework to really look at the experiences of Black women in all of the pink ghettos um, in legal education. So tenured, tenure track, um, administrative positions, um, along with um, writing positions, librarians, academic success, and bar. Um, and so we are um, in the early stages of kind of mapping out that that next paper. Um, but it's something that we certainly, I think, you know, considering our experiences, um, must address. Um, and, and we're excited about doing so. Well, Professor Allen, I can't wait to read that. I think that will be um, a wonderful contribution to the, the literature in this area. So um, I encourage you all to, to push that to the head of your priority list. <laughs> We're on selfish it. Selfish reasons. <laughs> um, but well, thank you. I, th- I think we could talk about this topic for a lot longer. Um, it's a very interesting topic. And I think one that is really important um, you know, I'm on law Twitter and there's always there was a conversation last night about kind of this separate tier uh, with legal writing professors and um, versus doctrinal teaching. And so um, I think it's so timely and, and so important. And so I thank you all for your work in this area and for coming on to the program. So thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I thoroughly enjoyed the paper. Look forward to reading further work from you all. And thank you to Brian Fry for letting me co-host this episode. See you next time. Will that be cash or charge? When you buy something, there are two ways you can pay for it, cash or credit. When you pay with cash, you're making one purchase. When you buy on credit, you're really making two purchases. First, you're buying the item you wanted. Second, you're buying the money you need to pay for the item. Credit is not free. You pay for the money you use, either indirectly when the seller raises the cash price or directly when he imposes finance charges. So when you go shopping, shop for a good deal on credit, too. Look for the annual percentage rate and get the lowest rate possible. Don't pay any more than you have to pay. This message is brought to you by the Federal Trade Commission, Washington, D.C.